0: I want to say greetings. Thank you, Dorothy. You're precious. I love you. I thank God for you, for who you are and what you're doing here, and how well you represent our Father. Um, I love the Jesus I see in you. Um, you may think that you don't get to see Jesus until you slip this earth and move into the eternal, but I disagree I believe you get to see Jesus in the face of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You get to see Jesus in the face of the downtrodden, the stranger, the outcast, the hurting, the marginalized, the left behind, the forgotten, the overlooked, the hated, the dreaded other. And you look into their eyes if you look close enough. You can see the Good Samaritan. You can see Jesus. Uh, I didn't want to just stop with you can see Jesus in your brother and sister because it's easy to amen that. It's easy to amen, well, I can see Jesus in this guy that played, and this lady that sang, and I can see Jesus in them. And it was wonderful. And I enjoyed the presence of Jesus I saw and worship tonight, but to see Jesus where you don't expect to see Jesus, if you'll watch for Him, we sing a song when I was a kid that said, standing somewhere in the shadows you'll find Jesus. That always intrigued me as a kid. Like I could imagine that you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you can't see anything and somewhere in the shadows you find Jesus. Now, I started with an image of God where the Jesus in the shadows freaked me out because I had a God that was mad at me, waiting on me to fail so He could come out from the dark and hit me with the rod and the staff that were supposed to comfort me. Anybody else? I had that God for a while, but uh, thank God I've dispensed of the bad versions of God. And this is a good way to start tonight. I'm easing into this this evening. This is all off script, all right? Well, first of all, being here is being although I've only been here a couple of times, I know you watch our ministry and you see what God's been saying and doing in us. And I try to keep up with Dorothy and find out what's happening in your world a little bit. And so in some ways it feels like you come into home, even though you're not home. And that's more than just this platitude of where well, we're all family in Christ. So, you know, I feel that cause I don't always feel that way with family in Christ. I mean, we, you, you people, you know, that know Jesus, but you don't feel that way. So, um, I'm going to let you pull tonight, all right? So if you draw that out, we'll just see where the Lord takes us. Like, I know where I'm going to go, but I have no idea that we'll get there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I know where I'm planning on going. I'm driving the car. The tank's full. The the GPS is set. But then there's this sign on the side of the road that goes, you know, world's largest ball of yarn, and you can't help but turn and go see if, hey, maybe, maybe we should check that out. And so... Uh, we'll turn off a couple exit ramps on our way, and we won't worry about where we're supposed to go. We'll just let the Father take us wherever He wants to go. So good way to start is to just say that, man, I, I, I want to help you this weekend. If there's any semblance left of an angry God, a mad God, a frustrated God, a distant God, a separate God, I'd like to help pull those grave clothes off of you this weekend and just let you know that that God never existed. Listen, let me tell you, I I don't even adhere to what happens sometimes in grace circles where they say, oh, that was the way God acted under the old covenant, but then came Jesus to show us a new way. No, no, no. That's Jesus acting as an agent of change on the Father. That's Jesus coming and going, Dad, we've got to change the way we do it. It wasn't working before. I believe in an unchangeable God. A God who is without variableness, neither shadow of turning. All good things come from God. If it's good, it's God. And I don't believe that God tried it for a few thousand years, tried the Moses way, tried the do good, get good, do bad, get beat way, and then went, you know what, it's not working out. I'm going to go down there in a flesh, uh, an earth suit, and I'm going to do it myself, and they're going to kill me, but I'm I'm going to stand in the gap, change my Father's mind, and then we'll function under a new covenant. No, 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 no. Jesus was here to show you that everything you thought about the Father, if it didn't look like what Jesus was doing, was absolutely wrong. Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. Amen. Jesus is what God always looked like. Amen. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God will always look like. I'm, I'm here to tell you Jesus is so much like the Father that if you can't find it in the ministry and life of Jesus to say that God would do it is blasphemy and heretical Jesus said, how much longer must I be with you that you know that if you see me, you've seen the Father. His own disciples spent three and a half years earthly ministry with him and missed it. To get to the end of his ministry and say, just show us what the Father's going to look like. And Jesus said, I'm exactly what the Father's going to look like. An incredible question. Show us what the Father will look like. Haven't you been watching? And yes, they had been watching, but in their mentality, God would... Swallow up His enemies in the sea and slaughter foreign armies with the sword. God might call down fire from heaven or open the earth up and swallow people wholesale. God might get so mad at you for sinning that He'd send a foreign army in and chop you down and let your blood run in the street. That's the God that they had. In fact, once Jesus went into a Samaritan village... And the Samaritans that were there didn't want to hear, have anything to do with Jesus. I can't imagine being in that village. Jesus comes in, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, but I'm not going to judge them. Because I've had a few moments I didn't want anything to do with loving Jesus either. I wanted vengeful Jesus. I wanted to go get him, God. I wanted to sick him, Father. Anybody else? Anybody else ever prayed to sick him, Father? And you know what I mean, sick him, Father. I mean they messed my, they messed me up. They messed my kids up. They've messed my money up. They've messed my mind up. Get them, God. In the name of Jesus, get them. <laughs> That's my old Pentecostal charismatic prayer coming in there. Ask God in the name of Jesus to do it. We always felt like we'd get God do anything if we did it in the name of Jesus. Right? You can't get God to do just anything because you throw <laughs> Jesus in there. It's got to look like Jesus. Can't just have his name on it. Goes into a village of the Samaritans and The Samaritans don't want anything to do with him, so the disciples say to Jesus, shall we call down fire on them like Elijah did? And Jesus just shakes his head and says, you guys don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. I'm amazed at how little that's preached in the churches today. How little we focus on the fact that Jesus was confronted with the ministry of Elijah. Shall we call down fire on them like Elijah did? How he was confronted with what was considered the God of the Old Testament. And when confronted with what was, notice I said was considered. When he was confronted with what was considered the God of the Old Testament, he said, you don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to kill people. I come to save people, which makes me ask, well, then what was Elijah doing? Because in 2 Kings chapter one, Elijah is confronted by a group of a captain and 50 soldiers, and he calls down fire and fries every one of them up. So they send a captain and 50 more soldiers, and he calls down fire and fries every one of them up. And they send 51 more and he fries, every, and it's, this is I mean, I'd thought after the first one, you'd have got the hint, but second one, third one. What, what's the problem? Was Elijah doing the work of God? I didn't intend to start this way tonight. We're just, again, we're just seeing where we go. Was Elijah doing the work of God? No. Absolutely not. Why? Because Jesus is what God always looked like, Jesus is what God looks like, and Jesus is what God always will look like. Jesus didn't come along and go, yeah, Dad used to kill people, but now we're not in the kill people business anymore. No, Jesus come along and said, that was never my Father's spirit. It's never been my father's spirit to slaughter. The son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his son. This is the verse we really need to memorize. It's the next one. John three seventeen. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So God sends Jesus not to change God's mind, but to change yours and to change mine. The truth is we ought to be constantly repenting. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind. We ought to be constantly repenting. So what I really hope you'll do this weekend is repent with me a little bit. But really, I, I try to repent a little bit every day. I want every day for the Father to show, shine the light of the Spirit on something in me in which I haven't made God look as good as Jesus, or I haven't made Jesus look as good as Jesus. And I'm calling it Jesus, but it doesn't look like the Jesus that went to Calvary and raised from the dead and ascended to seat at the right hand of the Father. And if you've got a Jesus that you think is about to split the eastern skies, come back, pick up missiles, guns, and bombs, and kill two-thirds of the world's population, i got news for you. Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. And Jesus is what God always will look like. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if Jesus wouldn't pick up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and kill His attackers, Jesus isn't coming back to pick up the sword and slit throats all over planet earth. Oh, I very much believe that Jesus rides the white horse and has a sword, but nowhere in revelation is the sword in his hand. The sword's always coming out of his mouth because the words that he speak are truth and they are life. And if you stand in the presence of the one who the sword comes out of his mouth, everything in you that needs to die will die all the way up to two thirds of your soul. Yes, I do believe that's what it's saying all the way up to whatever in you needs to burn up will burn up because that is the presence of the Father in us. It's burning out whatever's not real. Change your mind this weekend about God. The love of the Father is to consume you with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Oh, don't get scared! Consumption of the fire of the Holy Spirit's a beautiful thing. It's Moses standing in the wilderness, watching a bush burn, but is not consumed. And you look into the bush, and it creates a redeemer, creates a new man. It revolutionizes who you are. I, 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 I want to get I want to get to the text. I I really have something to preach, but I really feel like I've got something to preach right now, that I'm saying to you. So, you cool with just playing uh, freestyle tonight for a minute? All right. I love freestyle. Freestyle's dangerous, I know. Freestyle's like you took that right and that ball of yarn cost you $500 to see it. I know, but you didn't think I could bring that ball of yarn story back, did you? I didn't either. I, I almost forgot for a second if we had turned right or turned left off the highway, but I think it was right. Man, when the fire of the Holy Spirit is a, how many of you know the book of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. Okay, that's a beautiful thing. Don't be scared of the consuming fire God, because the reality is is that you want fire to consume whatever needs to burn that you don't need to leave behind. And so when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians three says that we we will all be tested as it were by fire, he says we built ourselves on the foundation that is Christ Jesus. He said, but. Some people, he said, build on that house gold, silver, and precious stones. He said other people build on that house wood, hay, and and straw. Or the old King James says wood, hay, and stubble. He says, and then fire shall consume it all. That which can burn up will burn up. He said, but he himself shall be saved by fire. He himself shall be saved by who? Well, all of us who are building anything. All of us who are building anything, we we got some gold and some silver and some precious stones. We got some beautiful aspects of our journey and our humanity and our relationship with God. And we got other aspects of us that aren't much. They're wood hay and stubble. They're things that probably need to go, right? And when we come into grace and we went, well, the finished work is taking care of that, all of that in me. And absolutely, the finished work of Jesus Christ, let me say this at the outset, the finished work of Jesus Christ is done everything in the universe that needs to be done for righteousness and holiness and forgiveness of sins. There is no way that Jesus can come and die twice. If he has to die twice, his first sacrifice wasn't good enough. Christ has died once for all of humanity for all time. Therefore, it is finished. That's good news. It is finished. But how many of you realize that you aren't? Okay. I think we've kind of lost this in grace circles. Because every time somebody brings up something in our life that might need transformed, we go, well, finished work. You know, grace has already done it. And I go, well, no, it's pretty obvious. You're still a jerk. Grace hadn't done that. you still got... Like, that probably needs to change. That's not doing the church any good. It's not doing you any good. It's not doing your spouse any good. It's not doing your neighbor any good. It's not doing your coworker any good. You're creating some chaos. The hell in your wake isn't, you don't blame, we're blaming everything on the devil. It's like, well, the devil did this. The devil didn't do, like, half of the stuff we give him credit for, because we did pretty good without him. Yeah. we doing all this chaotic stuff in our lives, and then blaming it on the finished work hadn't changed me yet. The, the reality is, is that you have been as forgiven as you'll ever be. You're as righteous as you'll ever be. You're a son and you're a daughter, and you can never be more of a son or a daughter. That's a finished work. Jesus cannot go and re-die and re-resurrect. All of that is done. But I know that I got wood, hay, and stubble. <sighs> Do I have wood, hay, and stubble? I know that I have some things that I need for Him to consume in me. Mark chapter 9, verse 49 says, and you shall all be salted by fire. And he says that right after a passage on, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. It'd be better to go into eternal life with one eye than to go into hellfire with two. You know that story? If your hand offends, you cut it off. If your foot offends, you cut it off. We stop being Bible literalists when we get to that chapter, <laughs> by the way bunch of biblical literates fighting for a six day creation. They get to Jesus cutting off hands and feet. Boy, it's all allegory now. So all of a sudden he didn't mean that. No poking out eyeballs. Oh, I don't think he meant you poke out your eyeball either, but he is telling you that there are some things you might need to take care of because it would be better to enter into the kingdom of God of life, knowing that there are things being cut off, being worked out, wood, hay, instead of being consumed up than to miss that. But That next verse, you shall all be salted by fire, means we don't get off the hook. Mm -hmm. So if I can figure out you should have plucked your eye out and you should have cut your hand off and you should have cut your foot off, but I'm doing pretty good. What happens is I get to the end of that verse and I realize it doesn't matter if I think I'm doing pretty good. We all get salted by fire. He goes, whatever you didn't pluck out, you probably should have plucked out. Don't worry, it's going to get plucked out. Whatever you did, whatever you... But that's good news. That's good news. Why is that good news? It means because He hasn't finished working on you. And He hasn't given up on you. And He isn't offended by you. And He isn't turned off by you. He's just pulling you into the furnace of His love. He's just going, come here, get closer to me, walk with me. We'll walk this out together. And then like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we walk into the fiery furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been before. And when you get into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who's in there? Fourth man in the fire. That means Jesus is always standing in the furnace of God's love going, come here, come here. Amen. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get in there, the only thing that burns off of them are the hands and their are f- binding their hands and their feet. Because all that's going to burn off of you is whatever wasn't real about you. By the way, that's the wrath of God. Okay? We don't have to try to preach away the wrath of God. I've kind of grown exhausted in grace conferences, sitting in sermons that are trying to worm around the wrath of God. Because there's these obvious texts about the wrath of God, and we keep trying to figure out how God's... Well, God's not mad at you, but here's the wrath of God. Please understand that what we consider wrath and anger is almost always retributive. We want people to pay for what they've done. That's how we define wrath. We respond through anger so that people will get what's coming to them. Right? The wrath of God is not retributive. It is not God paying you back for what you have done. The wrath of God is the fiery furnace of God's love that burns out whatever isn't real about you. We call it wrath because we don't have a better word. The ancients just didn't have a better word because if it's fire, it's God. Right? We say, well, if it's fire, it could be the devil. No, 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 no. If it's fire, it's God. John baptizes in the Jordan. He brings him out of the water. He goes, I baptize you indeed with water, but there's one coming after me who's preferred before me, whose fan is in his hand, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. I baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the... Holy Ghost and with fire. And in my Pentecostal days growing up, all that meant was getting baptized by fire mentioned, speaking in tongues, shouting, run, fall down. And I got no problem with shouting, speaking in tongues, running, falling down or any of the gifts of the Spirit. Praise God. If God knocks me down, I'm going to stay down. That's the only place I want to be. But Jesus comes along and starts to fan the flame of the love of his Father over people's hearts. And it's not about knocking them down, it's about picking them up. Because what the fan of Jesus, or what the fan of the flame of the love of God does is it causes the woman with the issue of blood to reach into the crowd and grab Jesus by the hem of his garment and pull her hand back because she felt the fire of the Holy Spirit on it. And when Jesus turns and looks at her and says, Woman, someone has touched me. The Bible says she tells him the whole truth. And Jesus says to her daughter, Go your way, your faith will lead you. You ever wondered what in the world got over her to tell him the whole truth? She just wanted the bleeding to stop. If she had a friend there, they probably went, You know, you didn't have to tell him all that stuff. But that's the fire. That's what happens when we meet Jesus. We start telling the whole truth. We just start unloading this stuff about what we are. Listen, you're in a safe space when you're in the furnace of God's love to unload the real you. And if you're, not in, a ch- if you're in a church where you're not in a safe space to do that, it's probably time to switch churches. Because the body of Christ is supposed to be a place where you don't have to be a hypocrite. But you don't have to wear a mask and fake it till you make it. You can leave all the masks in the car, leave them at home. You can walk in and be the real you. You can expose the real raw you in front of the flames of God's love with not fear that you're going to get killed, but knowledge that you're going to be transformed. Maybe not one Sunday, maybe not two Sundays, maybe not two years worth of Sundays. But the process of His love fueling and turning and moving on you is a process undeniable for those that will tell the truth about who He is. All right. Let's get in the word. <laughs> Truth is, we've been in the word for like 20 minutes. Just because I didn't have you turn to a word didn't mean you wouldn't get in word, right? And if you got that little flicker inside of you, if anything happened in that little moment, you felt that little flicker, that little flame about Jesus. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that is the absolute beginning of Holy Spirit transformation in your life. It starts with that little flame that happens inside because you start to hear about Jesus and the goodness of God. You notice how it kind of stirs your soul a little bit like, like embers over a dying flame when you start to hear how good God is? Let's let the Holy Spirit blow on those embers this weekend, shall we? Just let the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, just hover over the face of the darkness in the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. That's that's logos. That's the whole meaning of who God is. In the beginning was that word. It blew over the soul of this earth. Notice that the Holy Spirit always blows over the darkness and the chaos and the problem. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Because the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to destroy who you are. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to destroy the darkness that is not who you are. To absolutely paralyze that thing that doesn't define who you are. To shrivel it up and put it in the nail-scarred hands of Christ. To place it in His cross. So that you and I can walk in that newness of life because the Holy Spirit has blown over those dark, chaotic areas of our soul. I us trying to listen to the Spirit tonight on, on a couple of things. There's some branches. There's some roads we can go. This weekend, And it's not a lack of preparation. It's sometimes it's too much preparation. It's like you pray and say, i got this word and this word and this word and this word. But you want to hear the Spirit for the moment. Yeah. It's just one thing to be ready with a sermon. I'm ready with 15 sermons at any moment in my life, or 1,500 probably. But to hear the Spirit and what He wants to say in this moment to you, what He wants to do in this moment in this room, is a, it's a powerfully important thing. I believe the wind of the Spirit is blowing across the church in a very special way, in a very... The word peculiar came to me, but I'm checking it. I'm going to put it on reserve. I'm not sure it's wrong. I'm just not sure it's right for the moment. Unusual, perhaps? The church is being confronted with her own face in the mirror. We're, We're trying to figure out who we are. We've come post-pandemic. We've come through upheavals of all sorts. And and I I know I'm talking Western world. That's what we are in a Western world church. That's all I can really attest to. We're really trying to land on not only who we are, but on what we want to be for another generation of believers and what we want to be for the world. I think that one of the reasons why we're having a revival of understanding the love of God and the character and nature of God is because it's one of the things that we got wrong for so long. Yep. Yep. To the point that we've created versions of Christianity that look nothing like Jesus. Yeah. They've got His name on them, but they don't have His love in them. Right. they got His name on them, but they don't have His forgiveness. They don't have His openness. We've become, all of us, so influenced by the buzzwords of the political left or the political right that we can't have intelligent conversations And recapture some of those words because we've allowed ideology to steal them. Like for instance, we can't recapture the power of the word inclusive. We can't call God's grace the inclusive love of God anymore because we've allowed an ideology to tell us that if you use that word, you mean 17 things you're just not saying. And that, because we've done that, we've actually handed our, we've handed our vocal power over to the powers of the enemy so that we can be handcuffed to say the things that need to be said lest we be exposed or lest we be lied about or lest we be penned up as representing something else. But I very much believe that one of the things that is happening is we are being challenged in the church to rediscover the all-inclusive love of God. To rediscover it. Because it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. The, love, the all-inclusive love of God is Jesus. Yeah. It is Jesus navigating the earth. It is Jesus loving the adulterous woman and loving the sinner who's been brought down through the roof in front of Him. Son, your sins be forgiven you. Now, rise, take up your bed and walk. Go sin no more. It's the Jesus that heals on the Sabbath day. It's the Jesus that challenges old interpretations of Scripture. You have heard it said, but I say to you, You have heard it said, it is written, but I say to you, we, we, I know we think Jesus is nervy, but we ain't, we really haven't even discovered how nervy Mm -hmm. we haven't even really dug into how nervy can you imagine saying to the biblical scholars of your day, you have heard it said, but I say to you and what you've heard said, they can give you chapter and verse and you have the nerve to say yes, but you're misreading my father. You're misunderstanding God. You don't know what spirit you're of. And, this is, and that, that, that Jesus that is, that is forced, front, confronted with those issues on a day-to-day basis will simply consistently over and over respond with the love of His Father, the love of His Father, the love of His Father. What a powerful image. So much of what had been penned on God was our baggage instead of God's. I already shared with you the you don't know what spirit you're of. But remember the moment when Jesus is sitting in a house teaching and the crowds are so large that they start to tear the roof off the place. They lower a paralytic man in front of Jesus. The Bible says, Jesus seeing their faith says to the man, seeing their faith says to the man. Let me say it one more time. Seeing their faith System. Because it's not simply us waiting around for people to have faith. It's our faith for a bunch of people we'd rather see go to hell. At least sometimes that can start there. But how do I know? Well, because look what happens next. Jesus says, son, your sins be forgiven you. And the religious leaders lose their minds. Only God has the power to forgive sins. But more than that, what did Jesus not do? That by almost every account, almost every Christian preacher stands in pulpits every Sunday and says, this has to be done in order for people to receive the forgiveness of sins. What is it? Shedding of blood. Even Hebrews says without the shedding of blood... There's no remission of sins. And Jesus doesn't kill a lamb, a goat, a pigeon, a turtle dove, a bullock. He doesn't wait for the guy to pray. He doesn't even wait for the guy to confess his sins. Yeah. He just says to him, Son, your sins be forgiven you. And every religious mind in the room just blows out the top of their head all over the empty roof. As I was saying it, I realized they just tore the roof off. Yeah. And so. And everybody loses their mind. Nobody has the power to forget. Nobody has the power to forgive sins but God, yet Jesus does it. And then Jesus says, what's easier to say? Son, your sins be forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, okay, I'll ask you. What's easier to say? Son, your sins be forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Your sins be forgiven? Of course it's easier. Why? Because who knows if your sins were forgiven? <laughs> but if I say, I rise, take up your bed and walk. ah, <laughs> Litmus test coming up. Because <laughs> if you can't rise, take up your bed and walk, probably should have went with the other one. Now that's Paul White thinking through a secular mind, but listen to Jesus thinking through the mind of his father. They're accusing him of blasphemy. Well, God can't honor a blasphemer by healing the sick. So Jesus said, which is easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins, now I say unto you, rise. Rise. Take up your bed and walk because what he's saying between the lines is, if I didn't forgive him of his sins, do you think God's going to honor me by healing him? But watch this. He rises, take up his bed and walk. And really all we concentrate on is that he got healed. And what we ought to concentrate on, ready for it? Jesus forgave sins just by saying it. No nails no crown of thorns, no stripes on His back, no beating, no blood, no sacrifice. You want to know what all that stuff's for? That stuff's for us. We're the ones who need to see the retributive wrath of God And if it means it, and and what we did in a lot of grace circles is we funneled all that wrath onto Jesus. We said God was so mad at everybody that he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus and killed Jesus instead of killing us. If that's the case, God did not so love the world, God so hated the world. Because in so hating the world, he was so mad that he had to kill himself to keep from killing you. And you go, well, yep, Paul, but what about Isaiah 53.10 that says it pleased the Lord to bruise him? That's been the lone verse that we've been able to grab out of the Old Testament to go that God was going to slaughter Jesus. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Well, you know what? That's about as good a place as we could go to read tonight. Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, and when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his day's and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Let me give you, let me, let's do a little Bible study. All right? This is fun. You having a good time? Well, if you're not, too bad, because I'm having a blast. I won't hold you too much longer, I promise. A little Bible study, Isaiah 53, 10. There's 12 verses in Isaiah 53. You don't, if you don't have your Bible, don't worry, because the verse I'm about to give you is not going to be in your Bible either. I'm serious. You'll know what I mean in a minute. You go, boy, what kind of Bible study is this? Okay, hold on. I, I, I've, got, I've got your trust a little bit, I think. So I can, you can run with me on this for a little bit, all right? Hey, you don't have to come back tomorrow. I got you one night. <laughs> no. Isaiah 53, in case you don't know, in case you're not seeing it, that's the famous crucifixion chapter. Yeah. Isaiah 53 is, surely is born our sicknesses carried our sorrows. He was was chastised for our peace. All of this beautiful stuff. All we like sheep have gone astray. The iniquity of all of us was laid upon Him. Sacrificial stuff. This chapter is so Jesus that in, in our Jewish friends' synagogue readings on Sabbath, they read the entire Hebrew Old Testament through Saturday to Saturday, and they skip Isaiah 53. And that's a fact. And the reason that they skip Isaiah 53 is because no rabbi in the history of Torah has been able—Torah or Old Testament writings has been able to come up with a quality reason, a quality prophetic interpretation of this chapter that doesn't look like the Christian Jesus. And so, rather than submit to an in-depth study of Isaiah 53, their readings skip it. Okay, that ought to tell us something. 12 verses, Isaiah 53. 11 of them are dealt with or quoted verbatim in the New Testament. Because the New Testament writers very quickly latched on to the idea that Jesus was dying for something. Now, we look at that and go, of course they knew that. No, 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 they didn't know that. In fact, their initial response to the cross was defeat. Their initial response to the cross was, we lost Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, their eyes are blinded, and Jesus comes and walks next to them the seven-mile journey from Emmaus to Jerusalem. And He goes, why are you guys so sad? And they go, have you been under a rock all weekend that you didn't see what happened in Jerusalem? The one whom we thought would redeem Israel is dead. Did you hear how they said that? The one whom we thought would redeem Israel is dead. He did redeem Israel. But because they had a vision of how he was going to redeem Israel, how do you think they thought he was going to do it? Swords. Yeah. We love a man on a horse with a sword. We are pumped about a dude on a horse with a sword. They thought that was going to be Jesus, and it wasn't. And all of them were offended, by the way. When they get to Gethsemane, and the, man comes, the, the soldiers come in to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls his sword, and he swings it, trying to cut Malchus' servant's head off. That's what he's doing. He's trying to cut Malchus's servant's head off. He's not trying to cut his ear off. Who tries to cut somebody's ear off in the middle of battle? Can you imagine watching the scene from Braveheart and they're all out there just cutting each other's ears off? And that's what they're aiming to do? We did it. 3,000 ears out there. Could have been 6,000, but I can't swing with both hands at the same time. I know that one was pretty, that was pretty stupid. I apologize for that one. <laughs> Peter pulls his sword, tries to cut off Malchus' servant's ear. He ducks. That's what we do. Cuts his ear Cuts his ear off and falls on the ground. Jesus runs in front of Peter's sword. You don't run in front of a, a wild man swinging a sword. And grabs the servant ear and puts it back on his head and turns to Peter. It's got to be the most dramatic moment in the Gospels. And turns to Peter and puts his hand up. Stop it. Permit this. If you live by that sword, you're going to die by that sword. Peter, this version doesn't work. This isn't what I came to do. Have you already forgotten that I said to you to love your enemies and don't resist an evil man and pray for your persecutor? Have you already forgotten that I said to you, they will ask you to carry the load of mile. I say to you, carry it too. Have you forgotten that I said to you, if they smite you on the cheek, turn to them the other one also. You know why we're not impressed by that anymore? Because we flat out stopped preaching the Sermon on the Mount in the grace churches. We just stopped. I know. I'm in them. I'm doing their grace conferences. You go and preach the Sermon on the Mount, and one of them will come up to you afterwards and tell you you're preaching the Old Covenant. Even though it's the Jesus we follow who tells us how to love our enemies and how to pray for our persecutor. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus reinforcing the Old Covenant. The Sermon on the Mount is the Constitution of the New Covenant. It's Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom will look like when it comes alive in you. It's not go out and do this so you can get to the kingdom. It's this is what it looks like when you finally figure out you're a son. He even says it right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you do these things, you will be the sons of your father. In other words, in that moment, you will see that you are his sons because you begin to live this out. And so Jesus puts his hand up. Don't stop. And Peter runs. I mean, he turns and sprints out of the garden. The same guy that a few hours ago said, if they kill you, They're going to have to kill me because I'm not going to put up with it. See, I got a sword. The minute you realize the sword isn't going to work. I don't think a lot of us will know what to do if we realize the sword's not going to work. Hey, I got news for you. The sword is not going to work. We got a Jesus who out of his mouth speaks the life of his father, not from his clenched fist. All of his disciples turn and run. And all of them believe that they've lost. When Jesus dies on the cross, hangs between heaven and earth, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We think he's talking about Roman centurions and Jewish leaders. But he's talking about all of us. All of us who ever followed Jesus, who are disappointed that he doesn't bring the vengeance and the fire down on those that we think he should bring the vengeance and the fire down on. Disappointed that in order to win, he steps into death and defeat. Disappointed that he says, if a man will follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and come after me. Why? Because picking up your cross, picking up your cross is picking up whatever burden has been laid into your life by the cares of this life, they are not by God. God doesn't hang people on crosses. But it's picking up whatever burden is in your life, the loss of something you love, pain in your body, the crushing of your soul, anxiety, discouragement, loss. It's picking it up and putting it on your shoulder and following Jesus With it. With it. Not leaving it behind and whining that you have it and not blaming God that He brought it on you, but picking it up and carrying it right behind Jesus. His step, your step. His footprint, your footprint. Until you arrive in 2 Corinthians 5 and learn that His death was your death. That the cross you're carrying... He's carrying because it's really His cross that you're carrying. we got to bring back the message in the gospel of co-suffering love that Christianity is not a benefits club like some hotel rewards package where you get redeemable points with God and if you just believe enough, He'll help you pay your house off. Or if you just believe enough, You'll get all the healing that you want, or if you believe enough, they'll give you a raise at work. While believing that the suffering and the pain and the problem and the difficulty is sign and evidence that you haven't done something right. God's mad at you. Just trying to teach you a lesson. You learn that picking up your cross is part of your call. 11 of the 12 verses of Isaiah 53 constitute the New Testament message of the cross. He died for you. He died as you. He died so you can live. He stepped into the chastisement of the furnace so that you could follow him into the furnace and he could hold you while all the wood, hay and stubble burns and he could say, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Dad's not mad at you. And we love you. And I know you're going through hell. But I've died so that I can go through hell in front of you. So that whatever hell comes your way, I'll meet you there. Don't think you go through hell without. And I heard someone the other day say, one thing about hell is that Jesus won't be there. And I thought, if you're going through hell, you can guarantee Jesus will be there. David got it and said, if I make my bed in hell, God, you are there. Why? Because if you're there, He's there. Because suffering love. However, no New Testament writer quotes verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Do you know why no New Testament writer quotes Isaiah 53, 10? Here's our Bible study, and I'm going to close. I didn't go anywhere tonight we were supposed to go. All right. And you go, we can tell. Yeah. Because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And our, most of us cut our teeth on King James, New King James. And those Hebrew translations were translated to English. And they were filtered across hundreds of years. And so scribal translations, words addition, words changed their meanings. We lost them. How many of you realize that Jesus and the apostles did not read the Hebrew Bible? Jesus and the apostles read the Septuagint. About 150 years before Christ, 70 Greek scholars went into a room and they translated the Hebrew scriptures into modern Greek. The first translation of the word of God into the language of the people. When Jesus stands up in in Luke and reads from the scroll of Isaiah, he reads the Septuagint. When the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they quote the Septuagint. And you know why none of them quote Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Because the Septuagint says, God was willing to cleanse him of his injuries. The New Testament did not develop a doctrine of God beat his son up at the cross so he wouldn't beat you up. Because they didn't have that in the Old Testament either. What they had was, God will see his injured son... And he'll cleanse him and he'll pick him up. You have the resurrection. Jesus is not standing in the gap between a mad God and you. No. Jesus was killed at the hands of those who rejected Jesus in the same way that all of us have rejected Jesus at least once in our lives. And needed Jesus to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because I've done it and didn't know what I was doing. Anybody? Put him up there and didn't know what I was doing. And so the death that Jesus dies is Jesus stepping into death so that he can raise up in newness of life. It's Christ walking into the one thing that gets us all. Death. So that Christ can become a new. what Paul calls the last Adam on the earth. He can come out of the tomb. I love the song we did tonight. He, he turns uh, graves, into, graves, into graves into gardens. Listen to that. He turns graves into gardens. That's a resurrection story, man. That's, that's the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty and Mary looks up and supposing she had seen a gardener, she said unto Him, Can you tell me where they've laid His body? That recently came alive to me. She supposed she had seen a gardener. I'm here to tell you, she saw a gardener. She saw a gardener. He, oh, it's Jesus, but he's in a new garden fashioning a new world, a brand new Eden, just like you told the criminal on the cross today. You're going to be with me in paradise. Isn't God good? I told you, we'll show you a verse that isn't in your Bible. You know what I mean now? Isaiah 53, 10. The version that you're seeing is from the Hebrew, but the version that Jesus and the disciples and apostles read was from the Greek, the Septuagint. And I, I, don't, know how they, I don't know how they did it. Well, I, do, I believe they listened to the Holy Spirit. I think when they sat down with that Hebrew text and they started to translate it into Greek, the Holy Spirit intervened. And so don't write that God's going to bruise Jesus. Instead, write that He's willing to cleanse the injury of His Son. It's beautiful. No intention tonight to go down that road, but that's the road we went down. I hope you've enjoyed that little journey, that little journey into the heart of the Father. I've watched the Holy Spirit impact some lives in this room tonight. I've watched, and I know you can't read too much into physical response or physical emotion, but you can, you also should never ignore it. I've learned not to read too much into it, but I've also learned not to ignore it. Okay. And I've watched the Holy Spirit do some work. He's even doing work now on some hearts. And there were some moments in that where I watched a few of you have a revelation of the fire you've been in, understanding what's been happening, but realizing maybe for the first time that God's not putting something on you. God's not standing off seeing how you'll do it. He's standing right in the middle of it, and He's holding your hand. And He's going, we're going to go through this together. I know we live in a world where unfair stuff happens all the time. People go, this isn't fair. How could God do this? I want you to know that your father hurts in the same way that you hurt. You go, he could have stopped it. But the reality is who our father is, is that he doesn't step in to stop what happens to us. He steps into what happens to us. Please hear that again. He doesn't step in to stop what happens to us. He steps in with us so that we know if it happens to me, it's happening to Him. So when people say, where was God when this happened to this person? Where was God when this happened to that person? The best we can say, if we'll look at the cross, this is why you got to quit having God beating up Jesus. Because yep. if you got God beating up Jesus, maybe He is beating you up. Stop it. If it's not God beating up Jesus, then Jesus steps in as the Father into all of hell. And knows that you're going to step in there with him. He knows it because he knows it all. And when he steps into that furnace, he's still in there waiting on you. So that when you step in, he goes, if you hurt, I hurt. If you cry, I cry. If they knock you down, they knock me down. We don't win because we go pay them back. We step into this pain and we step into this death. And we step into this hurt. And we let my father raise us up in the newness of life. And it might not happen today and it might not happen tomorrow and it might not happen in a decade. But you know that he walks through the pain with you. So you go, where was God? I say, he was right there. In the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our shame. And it didn't please the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to cleanse him. And I'm telling you, it pleases the Lord to cleanse you too. God, you are good. God, you are good. Thank you, Father. Tonight was a fun, free form, floating in the wind of the Spirit and thou hearest the sound thereof, but do not know from where it comes or where it goes, such is everyone born of the Spirit. Tonight was like being that feather floating in the wind. And out of that, Father, you were tweaking and moving and doing where we interfered and I have no doubt we did burn that up like wood, hay and stubble, but where we caught your heart, where we laid you out in a way that made you look like the good father that you are, that brought glory to Jesus. Father, let that shine like gold, silver and precious stones in every heart in this place. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't we have a good father?